four-part series on Ecclesiastes. Uh, and Chris kicked that off last week excellently. And he started this series by looking at the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he showed this clip of them coming for this. There's something in mankind, isn't there, that's obsessed with wanting to understand. And it's this understanding of the meaning of life. And uh, there's something in our natures that craves these answers and meaning to life. And it doesn't matter what your background is, what your upbringing is, we all have this in our spirits. There's something that wants to know. And um, he introduced us to the series there. Uh, of Ecclesiastes, he explains to us that Ecclesiastes, most scholars believe that this book has been written by Solomon, King Solomon, who was King David's son. And um, we know by reading 1 Kings a lot about Solomon, um, we know he was an extremely wealthy, successful king. This guy was absolutely world famous. Okay, His wisdom and understanding was renowned throughout the nations. He was totally unparalleled in wealth, and he was given the gift of wisdom by God. His kingdom, as he was over it, David was successful, but he extended the kingdom significantly during his reign. But what we see here is we hit Ecclesiastes. Most scholars believe this book was written towards the end of Solomon's life. Okay, And we see a very different king to the one that we read as he started his reign. We see a king who has gone from being young and vibrant and God-fearing to a highly cynical, a disillusioned, a quite depressed king. We see a king who is reflecting on life. And as we read this book, it's quite scatty, actually. And at times, he often appears to contradict himself in so many ways. And as Chris mentioned, this book has caused major concerns. It's caused great debate as even as they looked at, does this book, should this book be allowed in the canon of scripture? There was great debate over whether it should be because to be honest, this book is pretty dark. In fact, it's very dark at times. They say chapter six might be the darkest chapter in the Bible. And I think it's because King Solomon is wrestling with some questions that are very deep questions. And it He has this honesty and vulnerability about where he's at that is amazing um, as he seeks to ask some of the most difficult questions in life. And Chris, look, last week, it's just important to reflect on this because this series is one that really we want you to hear the whole four parts. If you don't hear the full four parts, it's difficult to follow. And Chris looked at, this is just a, a reflection on what he looked at. He looked at three points that Solomon looked at. The first was, and this is why life is meaningless. He started by explaining that he believes life is meaningless. He believes it's vapor, it's smoke, okay? And he addressed three issues as to why Solomon has come to this conclusion. And the first was time. He looked at, he says, the problem is that time just keeps going and mankind cannot stop it. And mankind is insignificant, really, uh, because time stops for no man. And everything is forgotten from one generation to the next. So what is the point Life is meaningless, it's vapor. Secondly, he looked at death, okay? It comes to us all, Solomon says. We're born, we live, we die. It doesn't discriminate, it doesn't matter how much fame, wealth, or power that you possess on earth. Our journeys may look quite different, but our destination to death is the same. Life is vapor, life is smoke. And thirdly, he looked at the lack of guarantees in life. 
He said, no matter how we live, no matter how prudent we find our lives to be, uh, or evil or corrupt our lives tend to be, we all end up in the same dirt. There are no guarantees. Even if we live a righteous life, he says, even if we live with such wisdom, that life is going to be rosy for us. And so what is the point? Because he actually makes the point, the wicked seem to prosper. So what is the point in living a righteous life? And there's a deep dissatisfaction with the lack of any guarantees in life. And inevitably, the only guarantee that he can see in life is death. Okay, that comes to us all. So Solomon started this book laying out his thoughts on life. It's all vanity, it's all pointless, it's all smoke. But we're going to turn to this next part in the chapter. And obviously this is it's quite a difficult book. It's quite hard to hear. Um, and there's good news coming. But actually what we're trying to do is focus on this book uh, as Solomon introduces it. And he goes about in this next chapter testing his conclusion of the meaningless of life. He's searching for meaning. Okay? And... He essentially wants to test out whether other things will bring meaning. So we're going to look this morning at three things that he did. He sought it out in knowledge. He sought it out in pleasure. And he sought out meaning in work. Okay. And we're going to see how that works for him. And I think, do you know, when it comes to knowledge, starting there, many of us in the Western world are tempted to tackle things cerebrally. Okay, we've been fashioned, we've been brought up from a very young age to be educated, to learn, to ask questions. And we try and solve these questions with our brains. Or nowadays, we solve them by going on the internet and asking Google what the answer is to our questions. Unfortunately, Solomon didn't have the internet in those days to answer some of these questions. But I wanted to start, there was a um, survey done in 2010 and it was Ask Jeeves, it was the internet search engine then. And what they did is they published the list of the top 10 unanswerable questions from the past decades. Okay? And this list is based on 1.1 billion queries made on the site since its launch in 2000. So it's a 10 year span between 2000 and 2010. So for some of you, some of these questions might be like over your heads because you're a bit younger. So here's the top 10 unanswerable questions asked worldwide. The first one, what is the meaning of life? That was the top question in life. Why is this series applicable? It's totally relevant because our society is asking the same questions that Solomon was asking. Secondly, is there a God? Third, do blondes have more fun? It's a really important question that came up. Fourth, what is the best diet? Fifth, is there anybody out there? Sixth, who is the most famous person in the world? Seven, what is love? Eight, what is the secret to happiness? Nine, this is where I might go over some people's head. Did Tony Soprano die? The Soprano series was massive. And 10, how long will I live? So these are the top 10 unanswerable questions, most unanswerable questions on the internet. But as humans, just like Solomon, 
he goes on a quest, essentially, in this chapter 2. And I think this is a quest many of us go on. Many of the world goes on this quest to try and understand. We think that if only we can understand science, we'll understand the answers to the universe and therefore the answers to life. And so some people's mindset goes down this knowledge side of science. If I can understand the planets, then I will understand the answers to life. For others in the psychology side of things, they think if we can understand human behaviors and patterns, then we're going to be able to understand the answers to life and the questions of life. For others, it's the medical route. If we can understand the human DNA, again, it's the science side, we'll be able to understand the big questions of life and how it came to be. And the quest for knowledge and understanding, I want to say it's not a bad quest. Education's good. But the writer, who is Solomon, says this in Ecclesiastes 1.13, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. Solomon, we know, was given this opportunity in life by God to ask for anything at the beginning of his reign. And instead of choosing what most of us would choose, like money or fame, he asked for wisdom to govern the people of God. 1 Kings 3 says, I will do what you have asked. This is God speaking to Solomon. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And you know the thing about this gift that Solomon's been given? I think it's like the gifts that God gives now. It's not like the Matrix, where I don't know if you remember, Neo wanted to learn how to fight. And so they plugged him in and they downloaded this program that allowed him to fight amazingly straight away. This gift of wisdom that we're talking about that was given to Solomon wasn't something that was just downloaded into him. This was something that he had to work out. He had to seek and pursue this wisdom and this knowledge. And actually Solomon became a wisdom writer. He penned the book of Proverbs, which still gives incredible insight into life today. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 1.16. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. He obviously excelled in wisdom, but maybe not humility. <laughs> but in all honesty, we know from reading 1 Kings that Across the world, people marveled at his understanding and his insights into life. And he gives this conclusion to the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. He says, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is what he's found. This pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, much sorrow and much grief. He's found this pursuit to be empty. In fact, it's not just empty. It causes this grief and sorrow. Why might this be? What's going on for him to say this about pursuing wisdom and knowledge? I know when I, we just, we just said James is doing this impact team. I know when I, back in, what year was it? 2001? Was it 99? 99. My wife is always better at dating me. In 99, I did a, an FP team. And I remember being this, this very zealous young 19-year-old, I think it was, and... Maybe I wasn't even 19. My wife's going to correct me again. And I thought, do you know what? I'm so excited about going and studying for seven weeks theology. And do you know what? I, 
I just know that I'm going to learn so much of the Bible to the point where I'm going to be able to debate against the great atheists in this world and the great scientists who try and disprove Christianity. And do you know what became apparent? The more I studied, and still now the more I study, the more I realize I do not know. That's what happens when we learn. In fact, the more I learned, the more questions I had. And the more questions, even about the Bible, I realized we couldn't answer. And yes, I was definitely more knowledgeable about the Word of God, but the vastness of God left me in awe, but also, to be honest, fairly intimidated. There are scientists who are studying their whole lives to try and understand the universe better. And you know what? The more they learn, honestly, the more they discover they do not know. The more they discover how vast this universe is, that it's actually growing. Ezra Pound, he's a modernist poet, he says this, all my life I believed I knew something. But then one strange day came when I realized that I knew nothing. And Richard Dawkins, he's a famous atheist and evolutionist, he concluded this on human existence after all of his research and discovery. He says, human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to suffering, lacking all purpose. It's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? That you study your life and this is your conclusion on human existence. This is the thing about knowledge. Secondly, I think there's a realization that knowledge is one thing, but it doesn't connect you to something emotionally. Um, my hairdresser was out, um, hairdresser, my window cleaner. <laughs> my hairdresser? My window cleaner. I have a personal stylist, obviously, you can tell. My window cleaner, Carl, was over this week. And I was chatting to him. He's just turned 40. And he's just been over to New York. And he was telling me about his experience of New York. And he went over with his wife and his in-laws. And he said, look, we stayed in this mansion. This guy who's got the biggest spice factory in the whole of the world in New York. And he lives next door to a lot of famous people. And he said, I said, so how do you know this guy? How, how did you get the contacts? He was talking about how amazing it was. He said, oh, my father-in-law uh, and him used to go and see the Beatles at the cavern. They're absolutely obsessed with the Beatles. In fact, he's so wealthy, he's got all this memorabilia in his house from the Beatles. And I thought, that's amazing. He spent his life, he says he spent his life dedicated to coming over from New York, to spend time in Liverpool, learning about the Beatles, going to see them in concert, anything that they are at, he'll try and go to. Obviously, what they were at. And the thing is, he knows loads about the Beatles, but he doesn't know them personally. And it's just knowledge. What does that actually mean? You know, Paul McCartney, he's never met this man. If Paul McCartney was to meet this man, he's just a nobody to him. And for years, he's dedicated his life to collecting and learning about the Beatles. And he doesn't know them. He just knows about them. And this is the thing about knowledge. It can give us a knowledge, but it doesn't give us a connection. It can help us to understand, but it doesn't help us to connect with what's really going on on an emotional level. I think that's maybe one of the reasons Solomon was dissing knowledge. Thirdly, 
I have many friends who are doctors. In fact, there's lots of doctors here in the church. And some friends who are GPs, they say the worst patients are doctors. Some of these doctors are agreeing here. Patients, yes, absolutely. And this is because when a doctor visits the the GP, they understand why a GP is asking the question they're asking. Yeah, They understand all of the worst case scenarios of the symptoms that they're showing because they have a knowledge of what's going on. And you know, this can bring, if you're so used to seeing the worst case scenarios all the time, it can bring that anxiety to our lives as we have that knowledge because we know what things could be. Because our wisdom means in other parts of life that we see the decisions people are making. It might be the decisions that we see our children making. And we think, oh no, I see where this is going. Because I've seen it before. It might be that we see the, the direction our workplace is going. And we see the chaos that a certain decision is going to make. And some might say, ignorance is bliss for this precise reason. You see, Solomon tells us wisdom and knowledge are found lacking. They make us more aware than ever that our human brains do not and cannot answer all the questions that life throws at us. Knowledge is just facts without relationship. And it can feel shallow and devoid of emotional connection. And it can cause that anxiety and unrest amongst us. So this pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, that's the first thing Solomon tries. Secondly, pleasures. First, Solomon tries to answer the questions using his mind to figure out the mysteries of human existence. And that ended in sorrow and grief. And secondly, he goes to understand the pleasures in life. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 2.1, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He's searching. He's deliberately testing out or experiment what is going on, what's, what's going to be meaning in his life. And this pleasure that he's talking about is now talking about experiences. He's gone from knowledge and searching to wanting to feel or taste or touch. It's sensations, it's experiences that will bring him joy or satisfy him in life. And he becomes what some might describe as an experimental hedonist. And actually, he's chosen in life at this point to make his own personal happiness his chief end in life. That's what he's set life to at this point as he investigates pleasure. It's all about him. It's all about his happiness in life. And I put this sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Nothing's new. This is what Solomon did. Okay? So he starts with laughter. And he talks this, he says, laughter, I said, is madness. His search for pleasure started with humor. So he's this very rich guy in these palaces. He would have had, I don't know what, court gestures, gestures of some sort. And he would have people coming from all over the world to see him. And he calls it madness, which isn't like it's crazy. That's not what he's saying. It implies it's sinful. Morally perverse, you might say. He's suggesting that to cause laughter, in his opinion, there's a sense in which comedy naturally is funny through cynical, sarcastic, or cruel jokes. It's funny at someone else's expense. And I think many of us use laughter to get through life. 
For many, pe- for many famous people who ask them, that's the answer to life, is laughter. I mean, I found myself this week just watching, my wife will tell you, we were just before bed, I thought, what should I stick on? I stuck my Michael McIntyre on. I thought, let's have a bit of a laugh, let's watch Michael Ma- McIntyre. And for many, it might be sticking on what you see as funny YouTube clips. That's what you spend your time doing. It might be watching films. It might be just watching Parliament at the minute. But when it comes to pleasure, this form of cheering oneself up is not the answer, according to Solomon. He turns next to alcohol, it says. I tried cheering myself with wine and embraced folly. Do you know, our society, we've, we've mentioned it today as one of the chains to break, is obsessed with this activity. Whether it's abusing too much alcohol or drugs, there's a sense of seeking out pleasure in both these things. The weekend night out on the booze with friends, the gathering of friends as they indulge in the effects of different drugs. And this again is all about feeling something, experiencing something, or maybe escapism from something of the current meaningless in our lives. And instead of feeling, actually what it does is it numbs. Yeah? I know my experience growing up, 17, 18, 19, was one of this meaningless. I would go out, get drunk, wake up in the morning, have a hangover, not do anything that day, wake up again, go out, get drunk, not remember what I've done. And it was this repetitive cycle of getting drunk, thinking this is going to bring happiness, this is going to bring joy. And you know, there were happy times with my friends. But you've got this repetition that happens time and time again. You think, what am I doing? This is like Groundhog Day. It's pointless. It's worthless. It wasn't bringing happiness to me. Some scholars have suggested when it comes to alcohol, this wasn't Solomon getting totally plastered. This was him tasting the finest of wines. He grew vineyards. And this is all about him, the pleasure of alcohol and the finest wines. And again, it's this experience of tasting the best, going to the best restaurants. I love going to Michelin star restaurants. I love going tasting fine foods. It's that experience of, oh, this is beautiful. But again, the eventual outcome for Solomon was that this is vanity. It's pointless. Then he turns to money. It says... I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. Now, there are billionaires in the world today that we all know of. (laughs) And I think Solomon's wealth actually, honestly, would have outmassed them all. In 1 Kings, it says this. It says, all King Solomon's goblets were gold. All the household articles in the palace of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones. Can you believe that? I want to know, where is all this silver that Solomon didn't want? (laughs) Our society honestly is convinced that money and fame will bring meaning, value, and happiness. We see it millions of people every week going out, putting their money on the lottery for that chance of happiness, that chance of meaning in their life. If only I can win the lottery, my dreams will all come true and life will be great. 
But you know, the reality with money is no matter how much you have, you will never be satisfied with what you have. John Rockefeller, he was one of the richest men in the world. And he was asked, how much money is enough? And his answer was just a little bit more. Do you know, money tends to make us feel secure. It gives us power over people. And Solomon had it all. And he says in Ecclesiastes 5, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. You get in the picture here. Solomon still explaining everything in life as meaningless. He then turns to sex. Okay, He says, I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delight of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. So he starts with his music. Okay, gathering singers, female singers and male singers. And he would have been, what you'd see today, he would have had Beyonce at his parties. That's Solomon. He would have had the top pop stars at his party performing. And you know, music was what delighted his father, David, and he tried to find meaning through it. And there's pleasure. We know there's pleasure in hearing music, going to a concert, soaking up the atmosphere. It can make us feel alive, can't it? We have music today everywhere at our fingertips. I know for our kids, it's just... I know as a kid, you're trying to make mixtapes. It takes you about three hours to try and wind the tape back. And now our kids today, they walk around the house, they can just say to Alexa, play me this. Boom. It's there at our fingertips. But it doesn't bring too many in. Solomon says it's vanity. It says he had a harem of women. And I want to say this is a slight understatement for Solomon. We know in 1 Kings he tells us this. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edenites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. 700 wives and 300 concubines. I know what you're all thinking. It's a lot of anniversaries to remember there. <laughs> Chris mentioned last week that we spend a year of our lives romancing. That was one of the stats. I suspect for Solomon, it was a little bit more. He had a thousand women who he could live out any fantasy or desire with. These were the most beautiful women from all over the world, handpicked by him. And yet, however pleasurable this was, Solomon ended up saying he saw her as vanity, worthless. It's a chasing after the wind, something he was looking for that he didn't quite find. And today... We see in our society, it's no different. Our society is chasing after experiences that they think are going to bring them pleasure. We have porn, we have Tinder, which make sex fully available to all. I just want to say, while we're here, sex isn't wrong. Sex is a beautiful thing that God has given to mankind between husband and wife. But if we think that finding a partner is going to answer the meaningless in our lives. If we think having a bigger house, having more money, the sports car, 
the holidays, the music, or the addiction to substances that give us escape are going to bring meaning, then we need to take heed of Solomon's words. Who's been there, he's done that, and there's nothing new under the sun. This Jim Carrey quote, many of us know, he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Greg Easterbrook, he wrote a book called The Progress Paradox, which is subtitled, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And he proves that we have almost more of everything today than there ever has been, except happiness. In fact, he says, the more that we have, the unhappier we often become. If we go seeking pleasure, this is what we're going to find. Finally, toil or work. He says this in verse 22. What do people get from all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. The preachers moved on from trying to find meaning in knowledge and wisdom to pleasures and now to work, to finding value in what we do, in the toil, in the fruit of one's labor. And for this, you might be in education at the minute. This might be your toil, your work. You might be raising children. You might be completing the next video game that you think is highly important. You might be perfecting your job or your house, or your garden. Or you might be in a full-time job. And this is your toil. This is what Solomon's talking about. And Solomon is really low by this point in chapter 2. Okay? In fact, he tells us he hates life. This is the king who has it all. And he hates life. And he uses this word, this phrase, all their days, to signify the repetitive cycle of work. It happens throughout all our life. Even when we retire, we toil on our homes and our investments day after day after day. And he describes it as grief and pain. Even at night, he says, their minds do not rest. And I know just even this week, um, our kids went back to school on Wednesday. And on Tuesday night, we went to bed and my wife got up in the middle of the night. She couldn't sleep. And she woke up in the morning and and I said, what, what was going on? She said, she's been looking after the kids all summer, focusing on the kids. Suddenly, all the things that she's put to the side while she focuses on the kids on that night because they're going back to school, she starts thinking about. And everything's going on in her mind, ticking through. What should I do about this? What do I need to do with this? How do I do this? And so it's impacted her sleep, this work element. And for many of us, that's true. Work has an impact on our sleep. We end up even worrying about it at night in our sleep. And I know work tends to be an area that we feel we can make a name for ourselves, for many of us. We can accomplish our dreams, our goals in life as we push ourselves to extreme limits to achieve success, to leave a legacy, to build a name. And you know, Solomon had many projects that he set himself goals and he accomplished so much but it didn't quench the thirst inside of him. He built the beautiful temple of God to worship to Yahweh. He built an even bigger palace for himself. 
He built gardens and forests. He built fortune and fame. He built a kingdom that was recognized around the world. And yet he hates work. And I was thinking about this. When we think about athletes, they tend to push themselves to extreme limits with this single focus of Olympic gold. And often you hear them, and since children, they've been dreaming about Olympic gold. But just a couple of responses. Chris Boardman says this after he won gold, the gold medal in the Olympics in 92. He says he felt cheated. People think it will bring satisfaction, but it doesn't. He was working for this in life. So Michael Pinsent, four gold medals. He says life just moves on. Everything is downhill from here. This phrase, life just moves on, is exactly one of Solomon's gripes. Work pervades our family lives, our social lives, and even our sleep. And in the end, are we going to be remembered? In the end, have we actually brought change to people's lives? In the end, we all die and end up with nothing. We spend our whole lives working for something that we cannot keep. And he says, I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to someone, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit. Solomon was very aware of all the fruit in his life, but he was aware that someone else was going to get this fruit. And he didn't know whether this person was going to be a fool or wise, or maybe he did. For Solomon, maybe his wisdom allowed him to see what was coming. But his son, Rehoboam, took the kingdom, and in his reign, he lost ten-twelfths of the kingdom. The splendor of the kingdom of Israel would never look the same as it had under Solomon. And the vanity of building fame and fortune had left him absolutely empty. So I want to say, if we think we can find true meaning in building fame, reputation, or legacy, then I want to suggest we're going to be left feeling pretty empty and dissatisfied in life. I want to conclude, and this is probably the most important part, because what we're trying to do is bring something of this book in the order that it comes. And we get a very bleak view of, Solomon's, of Solomon in the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. And I don't know if you've realized this, if we've looked at this chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 1. But in these tests, as he explores knowledge and pleasure and toil, it's all focused on himself. It's all about self-seeking. The, the amount, if you read it in chapter 2, the amount of eyes, it's all about I, myself, and me for Solomon. And it's fast in these chapters. And what's even more astounding is the lack of any mention of God or what God has said in his life. Do you know, Solomon was a king who had great influence over many in this world, but he was also highly influenced by the many visitors from foreign lands and his many wives and concubines that he took for himself. He disobeyed God as he built great armies, as he worshipped other gods. That's what Solomon's legacy was. 
And he says this at the end in, in 1 Kings 11, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's commands. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenants and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you. I want to say about this book, I believe this book is still the inspired word of God. I actually believe it helps us to see that life without God is meaningless. Self-centeredness is meaningless. All of these things that we can grab hold of to try and find meaning or satisfy us will not. There is only one person who can satisfy us, fully satisfy us. And as we come to the end of this chapter, chapter two, I know Matt's going to take us forward next week. There's a glimmer of hope that we start to see as Solomon starts to bring God into the equation. As he starts to talk about the truth that although death is the great enemy in Solomon's eyes, there's an answer coming. Towards the truth that meaningless or purposeless lives can be transformed through God. So today... I want us to stand and worship, but I think we have to stop and we have to ask, are we chasing after the wind in our lives? Are we trying to find meaning in these things that Solomon is warning us will not bring true lasting satisfaction? And if we are, then we need to think about putting them down and picking up the one who will satisfy.